Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Tens of millions of readers got their first glimpse inside of a courtroom from To Kill a Mockingbird. Nell Harper Lee's 1960 novel remains a staple on middle school reading lists, and the film adaptation has captivated countless social justice warriors, law students, parents, and pet owners, thanks largely to Gregory Peck's Oscar-winning performance as small-town lawyer Atticus Finch. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and of our jury system. That's no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. Lee spent years writing about another case in an Alabama courtroom some 17 years later, although this one was real and a doozy, and she never published the intended book. That case and that mysterious book is at the center of Casey Sepp's new book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Casey Sepp is going to be talking about the book at the Atlanta History Center on Thursday night, but she's joining me now from Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Casey Sepp, welcome. Virginia, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to get to talk with you about this fascinating book. Oh, it really is. It's jaw-dropping, as you call it, as a true crime story, surrounding a man known as Reverend Willie Maxwell, born in rural Alabama in 1925, son of a black sharecropper. What do we know about him? So you've already kind of set out the the bounds of his early life. And like a lot of young boys in this part of Alabama, you know, he's born right on the edge of what was quickly becoming Lake Martin and into what was quickly becoming Jim Crow society. So he led a very circumscribed young life around Lake Martin. And he then registered for the draft and served in World War II and actually had quite a distinguished military career, but came back and had a lot of odd jobs on top of preaching. And so he worked at the local textile mill. He was also a pulp water. He worked in a local rock quarry, but it was the preaching that he was most distinguished for. And that's why he became so widely known in this part of Alabama. So he was the Reverend Willie Maxwell and renowned for his knowledge of scripture and his erudition and his ability to command a sanctuary with his preaching. And as you note, always looking absolutely polished, even even working in the pulping and the, the stone dust of drilling industry. He always looked crisp, white, had a beautiful, formal speaking style, always looking sharp, always looking handsome. Yeah, he was a man to to whom nothing could stick, they said. And his wife, Mary Lou Maxwell, turned up dead one night, and he goes to collect from the many different insurance policies he's taken out on her, some only a couple weeks before. Now, we learn from your book about the history of life insurance policies, especially after the Civil War. It seemed pretty easy to take out an insurance policy on another person. Why was that? Yeah, this was, you know, the 1970s, definitely the wild west of the life insurance industry. So um, fewer regulations then, um, fewer hurdles for when you took out the policy. You could do it without someone's knowledge as long as you had their social security number. Medical exams were infrequent and, you know, correspondence addresses were rarely checked. So someone like the Reverend Maxwell could take out, you know, 17 policies on the same individual. And because they were smaller denominations, a thousand here, three thousand there, five thousand somewhere else, these insurance companies really did 
didn't know um, how much insurance he held on any given individual. And in the case of a wife, it might not have aroused suspicion. Um, that first wife was found dead in 1970, but by the time a second wife was found dead under suspicious circumstances, even the insurance companies took notice. Um, and, and obviously, the book is not a how-to guide. The, the industry has changed significantly since then. And I think it's just an interesting time where fraud was really rampant. And you know, I mentioned this in the book, but there was another Willie Maxwell born the same month in the same year who was you know, committing insurance fraud down in Florida. And right here in Alexander City, where the bulk of the book takes place, um, there was a funeral home director who had been um, charged and convicted of murder around another insurance fraud case. So it was really just a rampant time. And that's part of the reason I felt like the book needed to address it, because of course, in addition to wondering how he could get away with murder, I thought folks might want to know how he could get away with taking out so many profitable policies on so many of his family members. Well, the story just gets crazier from there. Both the white and black townsfolk are afraid of him. Many suspect that voodoo is at work. How else can an African-American man in 1970 get over on the law and the law can't touch him? Nothing sticks, as you said earlier. So why does voodoo become the explanation? It was certainly um, an aspect of this case almost from the get-go. And I think it's certainly one of the things that probably drew Harper Lee to the case as well, because you have in the sort of betwixt and between of where the law can hold someone accountable and where crime proliferates, the need for an explanation. And, and that's the space where supernatural explanations often flourish. And in the case of the rural South, you're talking about hoodoo and voodoo and root working, distinct systems of belief, but but things that people reach for when, when life seems like a little more than they can explain or someone gets away with more than they ought to. And I really delighted. It's sort of on par with the life insurance business, really looking into the history of voodoo. And there's a lot of great scholarship now looking at where it came from and how it evolved and how syncretic it was with Christianity, which is why you could have a minister like the Reverend Maxwell, who people really did believe could also be a voodoo practitioner and, you know, whose ministry might well have intersected with um, common voodoo practices, too. So it was a part of the case from the very beginning. And, you know, all sorts of rumors proliferated from there. Everything, you know, from he hung chickens outside on the pecan trees to, you know, he could put a put a hex on you from across the street or your headlights would go out if you drove past his car. And um, probably the strangest of all the rumors was that, you know, he could travel faster than was humanly possible. And if that wasn't fast enough, he'd turn into a black cat to get where he needed to go. And, you know, if you if you think those are things just put on and told to a writer from Maryland who came down to Alabama to look into this case, I just about died the first time someone told me Harper Lee had adopted a stray cat while she was in town. And it was a black cat she took to calling Reverend Maxwell because, of course, those rumors were already being told to her when she was looking into this case in the 70s. Well, we will hear about what she made of that case and the fate of Reverend Willie Maxwell when we return to our conversation with Casey Sapp, author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. That's when On Second Thought continues. But first, it is our spring fun drive. One of a few times each year, we ask for your support for this and all the programs that you hear on GBB. The amount is really up to you. What counts is that we do hear from you and that you be a part of making independent fact-based journalism and the stories, often surprising like this one, that you hear on GBB. Here's how you can help.
Hundreds of people saw him do it. Uh, And you write, whether he was a hero or a cold-blooded killer depended on whom you asked. But one thing was clear. The man who shot the reverend was going to need a good lawyer. And as it turned out, the best lawyer in town was going to need a new client. I mean, horrible circumstances, but just an amazing line. And that lawyer was Tom Radney. He had represented the reverend in his case and got 50% of all of the insurance money he took in. What was his interest in representing Robert Burns? Yeah, so it's it's one of these, you know, you've referred to the twist and turns of this case, and, and certainly one of the twistiest and the turniest was in 1977 when the reverend was gunned down. The same lawyer who had represented him for 10 years and then took the case of the vigilante who shot him. And I think it was pretty surprising to folks in town that that Tom Radney would take the case. But of course, not surprising at all if you think of, of legal lawyering as a kind of sport. And I think that, you know, Tom rightfully had a reputation as one of the best defense attorneys in the state. And he liked hard cases. That's why he'd represented the reverend over and over again. And he was a good lawyer. That's why the, the reverend had stayed out of jail and managed to collect in what is today's dollars a half a million dollars in insurance money. So, of course, when Robert Burns, you know, shot him, shot the reverend dead in front of 300 people, he needed a good attorney. And it was actually his brother who convinced him, even though Tom Radney had been the reverend's lawyer, to, to let Tom take on his case as well. So in the summer of 77, you know, Tom goes right from defending the reverend to defending the the man who shot him. And that case went to trial in in the fall of 77. So long about September, you know, here comes Tom Radney and he had an assistant and he's going up against a DA who, um, you know, was was a very well-regarded lawyer too and was said to have handled more uh, murder trials than any other DA in Alabama history. So it was really, if you can believe it, they were both named Tom. So the two Toms were really just titans going at it. And, you know, the fate of Robert Burns was was almost secondary for them to the kind of fate and reputation of their legal careers because Tom didn't want to lose a case with half the nation watching, Tom Radney, that is. And Tom Young didn't want to lose a case where there were 300 witnesses to the murder. So that... Tra- I'm Virginia Prescott back with On Second Thought and Casey Sepp. Harper Lee won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for Tequila. Kill a Mockingbird in 1961 and then basically went silent until her death in 2016. We're talking about a court case Lee hoped to make the subject of her next book, which she called The Reverend, and she eventually gave up on it. Well, we've been learning about the case and now look at why it was never published with Casey Sepp, who you may have read her work in The New Yorker, The New York Times, or a number of publications, but she's got a new book, her debut book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Harper Lee, by the way, originally named Nell Harper Lee, but she was afraid that that name, spelled N-E-L-L-E, would be called Nellie, which she didn't want. So Nell did not fit in with her peers, or as we read in the book, did not comport herself as Southern ladies do. As we read in the book, her friend Truman Capote later wrote, we were both apart people. Uh, What was the role that they played for each other? Yeah, that's such a beautiful quote to lift up from Capote. And um, for her part, Harper Lee said that they were bound by a common anguish. And you get a sense already of, you know, not to put down two geniuses, but they must have been a little much for the people of Monroeville, <laughs> where through this little town in Monroe County and, you know, going around talking about being anguished or apart people. And to some extent, they were just incredibly bright, precocious children, and they learned to read early and they read widely. And so they, they really just wore 
further erudition on their sleeves, and that must have made it hard for people to put up with them. But I think it's also clear that they just did have a worldliness about them, and that was everything from you know obscure Anglican history to you know the kind of cosmopolitan knowledge of artistic movements or you know particular symphonies, and they were just tremendously cosmopolitan people. And it's incredible that the two of them grew up just across the fence from one another, and then they they have this fraught relationship as adults. You know, they collaborate on In Cold Blood and they um, help one another out in New York and make social introductions and edit each other's work. But um, it seems that In Cold Blood, that collaborative project, is one of the things that came between them, along with a kind of difference of opinion about how one should be in the world. And that's everything from drinking to drugs to the kind of, you know, promiscuity that Capote became known for, despite this close, almost sibling-like relationship as children. It's a very frictive relationship relationship as adults. Well, that is one of the fascinating things about this is that In Cold Blood is considered by many to be the first true crime book uh, when it came out in, what, 1966, if I've got that right? Yeah, yeah. So it came out as a book then. It had been serialized in four issues of The New Yorker. And, you know, true crime is one label for it. Capote himself liked to call it a nonfiction novel. And that that's a term that I think, you know, we know from Harper Lee's letters she really just chafed at. And, you know, if you think about it for a minute, they're incompatible terms. It's either nonfiction or it's a novel. And sometimes when we're paying writers compliments, we'll say, you know, nonfiction reads like a novel. And we mean that it's beautiful and it's lyrical and it kind of operates at, at the story telling level in a magnificent way. But in her case, she really objected to what she felt were sort of exaggerations and fabrications and the ways in which Capote had taken, you know, a story she had helped report and turned it into a work of artifice. Um, so a lot of what she was doing in Alex City and the book she hoped to write, The Reverend, was really formed in opposition to In Cold Blood. And she wanted to return to kind of earlier, more scrupulous standards of reportage and, and hold herself to a higher standard of nonfiction. But that was a place where she came up with a lot of holes when she was in Alex City reporting on this trial. You know, a lot of roadblocks and dead ends. What are some of the things that kept her from being able to fill in those gaps, the abyss, I think you identified as in, in the story that she wanted to tell? Yeah, I mean, she really, on the one hand, Harper Lee knew a great story. It's certainly true that, you know, the, the Reverend Maxwell was an extraordinary individual. And, you know, this was an incredible set of intricate legal cases. On the other hand, if you were a writer looking for facts, boy, were they hard to come by in the case of the Reverend Maxwell. If they'd been easier to come by, you know, the police would have, you know, convicted him of murder at some earlier point, And the insurance companies would have been able to, you know, stop payment on some of these policies. But instead, you know, it's very strange. And in, in some of the deaths of his family members, no cause of death death could even be determined. And with some of these, you know, kind of small circuit court cases, the the records disappeared almost immediately. And, you know, autopsies were performed on all of these individuals, but it's just hard to explain what had happened. And, you know, beyond that, I think what's incredibly interesting for, for Harper Lee is that voodoo is a fascinating part of Southern rural and urban spirituality. But anytime you're writing about religion, you're writing about beliefs and, you know, practices which are not black and white and, and which are not, you know, always definable or recountable. And, um, you know, these communities have their own shibboleths. And so here she was door knocking, trying to get to the bottom of what had happened. And it's just a bit of a murky case. And she complained to some people in town that, you know, another problem was that she thought this was going to be a great murder story. And she was worried her book was getting boring because it was just turning out to be a history of life insurance. And <laughs> folks said, so with my book, they see the extent to which she was right. You kind of have to explain 
it turns into a kind of financial crime, and and that wasn't what she thought. And in the case of some of the characters, you know, there there was there was no Atticus Finch per se. There was there was no one she could just set up as a hero and who could be formed in the pages of her book purely heroically. And so, on the one hand, she got what she wanted, which was a complicated story about race and religion in the American South. On the other hand, it was a complicated story about race and religion, and you know that that left her with a lot of problems in the writing. You have an African-American man, murderer, who basically walked away free. That would be a hard sell. Yeah, and particularly remember again, you know, it's 17 years after To Kill a Mockingbird, but she's still wildly known as a writer of a kind of palliative fairy tale about race in in America. And a lot of people say one of the reasons she didn't move forward with this project is her publisher felt the racial politics were too scandalous. So my guest, Casey Sepp, we're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to talk with her and Harper Lee, a critical part of assembling Truman Capote's groundbreaking In Cold Blood that struggled so mightily to write her own true crime narrative of the Reverend Willie Maxwell. And On Second Thought is on listener-supported GPB. That means your support right now makes a big difference in our ability to provide smart, relevant programs on the air for you and for the community every single day. I'm Virginia Prescott, reminding you that our Spring Fun Drive is underway, and if we haven't heard from you yet, make sure this is the time that you join us for the first time or continue your support. Or better yet, become a GPB sustainer with monthly contributions. You can set that all up at gpb.org or call us at 1-800-222-4788. And thank you for your support. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. After writing To Kill a Mockingbird, Nell Harper Lee never wrote another book. It was not for lack of trying. And we're learning about the true crime story that Lee hoped would turn into a book that she called The Reverend. But she did give up on it. And my guest, Casey Sepp, has in many ways written that book, in a sense. Her debut is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Just before the break, we were talking about the difficulty of selling this book, in a sense, um, not just to her publishers, but maybe even to readers, um, despite some great characters and Big Tom's theatrics in the courtroom are really, really worth reading and kind of hilarious in their own way. But To Kill a Mockingbird casts such a long shadow, and you write that the book, the better the book did, the worse she seemed to be. After spending so much time researching her life and talking with her friends and seeing her papers and letters and notes, do you have a sense of what was going on for her emotionally? Gosh, I mean, isn't that one of the kind of deep questions about any writer, not just Harper Lee? And and in her case, there there were a lot of things at this time in her life, you know, people close to her say it was a dark time. But for much of the 60s and, and well into the 70s, um, on the one hand, she just has these tremendous pressures and expectations from her agent, from her publishers, from the public. And that's what happened to, it happens to any writer who's lucky enough to write a successful book. You know, people just want another and another and another. So she's living under the weight of that, which has existed since since the minute Mockingbird came out. People loved it. And those expectations only grew after the movie made the book even more popular. And she is also someone who, even before that, had a kind of tortured notion of who an artist should be and how an artist should work. And, you know, that meant she really valorized suffering. And in a way that was kind of one of the hardest things for me to understand about her because I'm a very happy writer and I just feel like it's one of the best jobs somebody somebody can have and it's certainly not manual labor but Harper Lee had this idea that you really had to suffer for your work and 
you know, you should slave over every sentence. And if it's not difficult, it's not good. And that can just become such a self-reinforcing prophecy about work that, you know, you you suffer in order to kind of make sure that it's good enough. And beyond that, you know, um, she, she had a kind of emotional volatility that... Um, you know, I'm not a clinician, but people would say she suffered from depression or that she had kind of high highs and low lows just interpersonally. And beyond that, you know, she was capable of self-medicating. And even though, you know, her father had been on the liquor board of Monroe County and her older sister, Alice, you know, ne never had a sip of alcohol. Here's here's Nell Harper, who could really just drink anything that was around. And it's hard to know in what direction those problems went. You know, did she drink because she couldn't write or could she not write because she drank? And was she depressed because she couldn't write or did not writing lead to, you know, exacerbating her depression? But there's a lot going on for her. And that's just in, in kind of general. And that's been happening ever since she published Mockingbird in 1960. But by 1977, you know, there's this added pressure of the case itself that she's found. And the reverend was particularly and specifically difficult, but it, it brought to life and sort of, you know, returned to these older kind of generic problems she had with writing. Mm. And it, she's struggled mightily with it. Tom Radney gave her access to all of his files on the Reverend Jim Earnhardt, a writer for the local paper, gave access to his. And, and she has her title, but she gives up after 10 years. How do you think she spoke to herself about it? I mean, I, I was thinking that she failed to write the book, but, but maybe she abandoned it is better, uh, but gave up ultimately on the Reverend. I'm you know, not here to judge. I mean, it's a, an amazing portrait of of the pressure and um, the way that she thinks of herself. I, I, I wonder what she told herself about giving up on the Reverend. Do you have any clue to that? The truth is we don't know all that much about what Harper Lee thought of about anything because, in fact, she was so private. And um, there, there, there was no privacy deeper than the, the, the kind she maintained about her work. And that, again, is part of this ancient notion of artistry as suffering and, um, you know, turning inward and, and really just leading a life of the mind and a kind of solitary life as a writer. Now, having said that, I do feel I have to lift up the possibility that there's a manuscript sitting in Monroeville, because when you go and talk to people who knew her at this time, you know, there are some who think she wrote the whole thing and decided not to publish it. So again, one of the things I had to be very careful with in the book is taking seriously all the correspondence where she's talking about her struggles or her difficulties or why she's putting the project down. But you you have to kind of square that with what these other people were told or what they heard, because there's certainly, you know, the kind of two poles of expectation around this book are either she was struggling so much she couldn't have written but more than a few pages, all the way to the other end of things where people say she wrote the whole thing and she simply decided not to publish it and that there's a possibility of posthumous publication. So there's really, you know, talk about beating the bounds of possibility. There, There's there's a possibility for just a few more pages or a whole manuscript. And that was one of the delightful mysteries for me when I was reporting it, the kind of roller coaster of what people close to her had been told or what they expected. And I wanted to maintain some of that for readers because it, you're really along for the journey of her taking on this project and she lived a long time after she worked on the Reverend around Alex City but just because she didn't publish it doesn't mean she didn't write it Casey Sepp what a pleasure talking to you thank you so much thanks so much for having me Casey Sepp she is the author of Furious Hours Murder Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee she'll be speaking about the book tomorrow night that's Thursday evening at 7 o'clock at the Atlanta History Center if you'd like details go to gpbnews.org 
And you rely on the information you get from GPB, either online at gpbnews.org or on the air. It deepens your understanding of our region and our country and our world. I'm asking you to join with other listeners around the state and beyond to help cover the costs of delivering that news to you, that information, and all the conversations you get on GPB. That is really how public radio works. And that's what our Spring Fund Drive is all about raising the money that is necessary to cover the costs of the news. The doors are wide open, and we hope that you'll be the next listener to join the family. You can go to gpb.org or call us at 800-222-4788. Go ahead, do it now while you're thinking about it. And thank you.